Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. Welcome over to Product. Today I'm here with Raul, who's the founder and CEO of Superhuman, a startup that is super hot these days. Uh, Raul, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Cool. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, so with my background, let's see. Uh, let's start at the start. I was very fortunate, I think, to grow up with computers. I started programming when I was eight. And by the time I was 15, I knew I wanted to make software and be an entrepreneur. And so in 2010, I started my last company called Reportive, and we built the first Gmail plugin to scale to millions of users. You might remember it. Uh, but when people emailed you, we essentially showed you what they looked like, where they worked, their recent tweets, and links to their social profiles. We grew rapidly, and two years later, we were acquired by LinkedIn. And then shortly after I left LinkedIn, I started Superhuman. So Raul, talk to me all about your background at Superhuman. And why don't we just jump on to the next question? Like, tell us the story of Superhuman. What compelled you to start the company? Well, at LinkedIn, I ran our email integrations. And during the two years of Reportive and the two years at LinkedIn, I developed a very intimate sense of how professionals do their email. And I could see in particular Gmail getting worse every single year, becoming more cluttered, using more memory, consuming more CPU, slowing down your machine, and still not really working properly offline. And then on top of this, people were installing plugins like ours, Reportive, but also things like Boomerang, Mixmax, Clearbit, you name it, they had it. And the thing with these plugins is that they took these problems of clutter, memory, CPU performance offline, and all of that, and they made each one of them dramatically worse. And so we simply said, you know, this, it's time for change. We imagined an email experience that's blazingly fast, where searches are instantaneous, where every interaction is 100 milliseconds or less. We imagined an experience where you never had to touch the mouse, where you could do everything from the keyboard and fly through your inbox. An experience, of course, that just worked offline so you could be productive anywhere, and one that had the best Gmail plugins built in, but natively, and yet was still somehow subtle, minimal, and visually gorgeous. And so with that, we built Superhuman. And this was a number of years ago now, back at the end of 2014, 2015. And today, we've got to the point where you know Superhuman is live. Lots of people buy it. They love it. It's the fastest email experience in the world. And many of our customers get through their inbox twice as fast as before and see inbox zero for the first time in years, which, as you can imagine, is pretty life-changing. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you think back with Google, right? One of the big things they had with search is it had to be fast. It had to be super fast. But they kind of, I guess, dropped the ball here with uh, Gmail in that way? I think it's a technologically extremely hard problem. I've read reports suggesting that the contents and the index of Gmail is about seven times larger than the web itself, which kind of makes sense because it's everything everyone has emailed each other for, for the last 10 years. And then, of course, all of the mailboxes that were imported prior to that, which isn't just all the websites. It's more of a, an N-squared problem, and it turns out to be really hard. Interesting. 
So one of the things you're known for too at Superhuman is this whole product market fit. And you've quite the story when it comes to finding product market fit at Superhuman. I remember reading a first round article and you wrote about the definitions of product market fit. And you found that they're often helpful for companies post-launch. Can you expand upon you know, that article and what you meant by that? Sure. So at the time when I came upon my journey towards finding a way to measure and improve product market fit, I was at a particularly low point with Superhuman. We were two years in and we had still not yet launched. And yet Repulsive, my previous company, had launched, scaled, and been acquired in less time. But I knew deep down inside that for Superhuman, a launch would go very badly. I simply did not believe we had product market fit. And I couldn't just say that to the team. These are super ambitious, hyper-intelligent engineers. They poured their hearts and souls into building the product. So I searched for a good way to define product market fit. And I quickly came across a few definitions. For example, Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, would say you have product market fit when you've made something people want. And Sam Altman, who took over Y Combinator after him, would say you have product market fit when users love your product so much that they spontaneously, without even asking them, tell other people to use it. But it's perhaps Mark Andreessen, who's arguably the best VC of all time, who had the most vivid and compelling definition that I found. He would say, on the one hand, you can always feel it when product market fit is not happening. Customers aren't quite getting value. Users are not growing that fast. Word of mouth is not spreading. The press we use are kind of blah. And the sales cycle takes too damn long. But you can almost always feel it when product market fit is happening. Customers are buying as fast as you can add servers. You're hiring sales and support as fast as you can. Reporters are constantly calling you about your hot new thing. Money is piling up in your checking account and investors are camping outside your house. So these were some of the definitions that that I found. And what definition sounds best for you? Well, you see, these are all great, but they also do share one thing in common. They are lagging indicators. And by the time investors are camping outside your house, you already have product market fit. So that's when I started my search for the holy grail, for a way to define product market fit, for a metric to measure product market fit, and for a methodology to systematically increase product market fit. And I searched high and low. I read everything I could find. I spoke with all the experts. And I found Sean Ellis, who led early growth at companies like Dropbox, LogMeIn, and Eventbrite. And the amazing thing is that Sean found a leading indicator, one that is benchmarked and predictive. So you just ask your users this. How would you feel if you could no longer use the product and then measure the percent to answer very disappointed? And after benchmarking hundreds of startups, Sean found that the companies that struggle to grow always get less than 40% very disappointed. And the companies that grow easily almost always get more than 40%. So in other words, if more than 40% of your users would be very disappointed without your product, you have initial product market fit, and you should start to invest in growth. What do you say when people say that product market fit isn't a thing, right? That it's an artificial gate. What do you say to them? Well, I would ask, first of all, what they mean by uh, an artificial gate. Do they have a different way that they would advise of building a company or a product? 
Yeah, and I think that the idea there is, and maybe it's just a misapplication too. They're like, hey, we have 20 customers that you know love us and will stay with us, but they don't necessarily have that clear grasp of what their value is or who it resonates with and why it resonates. So they're not sure exactly how to scale. Like they know they have happy customers, but they're not sure what defines them you know, or how they're positioned, right? In the marketplace, like it, they're positioned. They just don't understand the fact that they are positioned and how they're positioned in the marketplace. I see. Yes. And, and this is where the article that I wrote goes beyond the metric into a way to actually understand who your customers are and two very key things. Number one, what is it that people love about your product? And number two, what holds people back from falling in love with your product? And to this theoretical product manager or founder who has 20 customers who say they love the product, I'd really want to look at that data and say, well, do they all love it for the same reason? In which case, fantastic, you probably have something here. Let's go find more of this type of customer. Or do they all love it for different reasons? In which case, we probably have more work to do. Yeah, so it's a matter of not only having that metric, but then having a grasp of what the value to those customers is, You know, what defines kind of those customers themselves and why they get that value out of the product, right? So it's kind of the, it's great to have the metric and that's kind of like the indicator you want to look at, but at the same time, you have to understand the why behind the numbers, right? Exactly. And that's what the methodology I outlined in the article does. It even goes so far as to take all of that data and automatically generate a roadmap for you that half focuses on doubling down on what people love and in doing so, keeping you ahead of competition And on the other half, focuses on systematically overcoming the objections for the people who just about love your product, but they're not quite there. And that's what lets you uh, grow your audience over time. So talk to us about um, how you made the product market fit score one of your big, if not your biggest and most visible metric in your organization. How do you track it over time and, and how do you use it to structure product? Well, the product team at the time was just me. So really the only thing I had to structure was was my own brain. And in terms of actually getting the company on side and behind it, it was quite easy because like many other startups and popularized by Google, we run superhuman with objectives and key results, you know, also known as OKRs. So once the company understood the metric and we had an offsite to talk about it and to understand where it came from and and how to apply it and its limitations, it was quite easy to galvanize around it. We set a long-term objective to build a product that people love and find indispensable. And then we use the product market fit score, that very disappointed metric, as our main key result. So prior to product market fit, right? I, I imagine Superhuman wasn't like a lot of other startups have been along around involved with. It can often feel like tense and turbulent. What's your advice on leading and motivating teams in those times, right? Prior to product market fit in those times of unease. Yeah, there's no silver bullets, unfortunately. Uh, The technique that I use, and I think this is where each founder or product leader is going to have to rely on the thing that they are best at. But the technique that I use is to fall back to vision and to point to and celebrate the parts of the products that are going well. So for example, early on in Superhuman, we had an incomplete product. You know, it turns out to build an email client, it takes three years of a full team of working intensely. And early in that journey, it wasn't done. But we were able to put emails on the screen 
in less than 100 milliseconds. And we were able to do instantaneous searches. And we'd built a landmark piece of technology wherein we, were, we had figured out how to download, store, and index your email within the browser itself. And all of that together felt truly magical, even though we had the tremendously long journey ahead of us in terms of actually building a functional email experience around that that people actually would want to use. So uh, I think it's just keeping an eye on what you've done that's incredible and how that's special and how that's differentiated and celebrating those moments of success as they come by. So, you know, taking an analogy, it's kind of like if you're building a car and it's a process, right? And you start with, say, the engine, you're building, you know, a beautiful, powerful, efficient engine. You can celebrate that as the milestone that's getting you closer to, you know, your ultimate vision and what you can sell, in your case, email, and in that case, a car, right? Exactly. Cool, cool. So, you know, now we're into, uh, you have this product and you have to position it in a marketplace that already had big name competitors like Outlook and Gmail. And I think that positioning part, right, is really the underlying framework that's necessary to, to fit with the product market fit metric and approach, right? So talk to me about positioning. Talk to me about positioning your product in, in the space that had, you know, some significant competitors from the two biggest or two of the three biggest tech companies in the world. Yeah, so positioning is a super interesting topic. It's actually one of my favorites as it lies at the intersection of marketing and strategy. And when positioning or picking a strategy, I think you really have to start by understanding the strengths and weaknesses of the alternative products. For both Outlook and Gmail, their main source of weakness is that they are way too big. The audience they have to serve is too big. Gmail alone serves over 1.5 billion users. The companies that make them are way too big, and the product surface area is also too big. And another source of weakness is that they are essentially free, and users therefore do not expect greatness or develop brand loyalty. People simply do not fall in love with Outlook or Gmail like they would a piece of software that they pay for and expect a lot from. So for Superhuman, we positioned ourselves at the premium end of the market. We are building software for the people for whom email is work and work is email, the kind of person who spends hours a day in their inbox. And because we'll be a billion dollar company with just a few hundred thousand subscribers, we can really focus on this type of person in the way that Outlook and Gmail cannot because they serve a much, much wider market. So yeah, that, I was going to say that's very interesting about like the downsides to free, right? Yeah, totally. It, it actually reduces the expectation that people have of the product. And any error or glitch is then a reflection of the quality of the product. Whereas when we have an error or a glitch, our users understands that we're on a journey and that we're on the journey to build the best possible product and they're therefore a lot more forgiving about it. And they just perceive it in a very different manner. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not just the income streams, right? It's, it's the mentality that customers have, you know, like you were just saying. Yeah, completely. So talk to me about, you know, high expectation customers. So the high expectation customer is a framework to figure out who are the people who really love our product? And it's a concept that I found from Julie Supan. Julie led early marketing at Dropbox, Airbnb, and many other great companies. And her definition is as follows. The HXC is the most discerning person in your demographic. 
They will enjoy your product for its greatest benefit, and they will help spread the word. And critically, others aspire to be like them because they seem clever, judicious, and insightful. And the reason why this is important is because if you have a clear idea of who your HXC is, you can then make them happy. And if you make them happy, they'll talk about your product, and then other people will start to adopt it. One of the reasons why this is so important, or, or when I realized how important it was, uh, was actually when I joined LinkedIn. And when I joined LinkedIn, my manager was the head of growth for LinkedIn in the heyday of its growth. And this is uh, Elliot Schmuckler. He scaled LinkedIn from around 25 million members to north of 250 million members. And in our very first one-on-one, -on -one, I sat him down and I was like, hey, listen, I want to learn everything that, that it's possible to learn about virality. Tell me how virality works. And the first lesson he taught me was that ultimately it always comes down to word of mouth. There's only so much you can do with viral loops and mechanics and so forth in your product. If people, and in particular, if influencers don't actually like your product and the other people don't want to be like those users, then it's not going to grow. And that's where the HXC comes into play. Uh, now, to make it concrete, because I realize it's, it's quite an abstract concept, I have two examples here. So first of all, the HXE for Dropbox. The Dropbox HXE wants to simplify their life. They're very trusting, they're technically savvy, and they're looking to save time. At the end of the day, they want to know that somebody has their back when it comes to their life's work. And I'm personally an example of the Dropbox HXE, and I'm sure many of our listeners today are also. Another example would be Airbnb. So the Airbnb HXC does not simply want to visit new places. They want to belong. They want to experience Paris as if they really live there. Airbnb's early success came from focusing on these influencers and these tastemakers. And so for an HXC for Superhuman, for example, we very early narrowed in on the archetype of user who will use Superhuman for its greatest benefit, who will help spread the word. And there's plenty of people who aspire to be like those individuals. And that was a key part of getting the growth engine moving in the early years of superhuman. Do you, do you ever feel that that approach can be too limiting or narrow? I don't think so. And it goes back to the lesson that Elliot taught, which is it is not possible, in fact, to build a business at any kind of consumer scale without a word of mouth flywheel. And one of the best ways that I know of to build a word of mouth flywheel is to cater to those high expectation customers because they're very vocal. They often have large platforms and because other people want to be like them. What advice would you give to other startups looking to like identify those customers to get kind of that, that base to start the flywheel? Uh, well, this is where we go back to the article that I wrote in First Round Review. And in that article, I articulate four questions that you should survey users with. Number one, how would you feel if you can no longer use the product? That's the classic Sean Ellis question. And you let people answer either very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, or not disappointed. And then three more questions. Number two, what type of person do you think would most benefit from this product? Number three, what is the main benefit you get from the product? And number four, how can we improve the product for you? And so if you're looking to identify your HXC, you simply run this survey, you take the users who would be very disappointed without your product, and then you analyze their answers to question number two, what type of person 
do you think would most benefit from this product? And this turns out to be a very powerful question as happy users will almost always describe themselves using the words that matter most to them. And you can then turn these words into a rich and detailed explanation of your own highest expectation customer. And as a secondary benefit, you can also use these words in your marketing copy. So it turns out to be an exceptionally powerful survey. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd even argue the secondary benefit might be one of the primaries. <laughs> yeah, it depends what phase of company you're in. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about other metrics. How do you feel about some of the other metrics out there, things like NPS? I actually really like NPS. At Superhuman, we use it just as much as we use the product market fit score. But I think it's important to note that they are quite different. They measure different things and different levers move them. The product market fit score measures a level of dependency on a product, either because there's such a strong emotional connection or because nothing else exists quite like it. Whereas the NPS score measures how strong your word of mouth effect is likely to be. In other words, how strong your word of mouth effects will be in the real world. And in practice, one is not better than the other. I think you do need both to build a meaningful company. And when I'm advising founders or product leaders, I always advise solve for the product market fit score first. It's the most fundamental, but I wouldn't leave solving for NPS too late. You're going to need it in order to build a, a company that has any kind of scale. Any other metrics that you pay a lot of attention to? Uh, just the classic ones. So the, the most important for us are product market fit score, the net promoter score. We, of course, pay very close attention to retention and its inverse churn. Obviously, cohorted, one of the classic mistakes I see product leaders making is, you know, looking at rolling churn or rolling retention and, and that can obscure cohort effects. I think those are pretty much our main ones. So talk to me a little bit about benchmarking. Is it important, do you think, for product teams to benchmark these metrics and their scores against others in their industry, across industries? I think it depends on the score that we are talking about. Scores like the net promoter score are famously difficult to compare between companies. And for scores like that, the most important thing is to measure a way to survey it, don't change it, and then to benchmark over time with self-performance. So in other words, find a way to measure net promoter score and then keep on doing it and try and make that number go up over time. And that's a perfectly valid and a really great way to use that score. But then there are scores like the product market fit score and churn. And these are scores where it turns out you can actually make meaningful comparison between companies and it turns out there are also good benchmarks. So for the product market fit score, the benchmark that Sean found is 40%. If you're north of 40% very disappointed, then you have initial product market fit and you should probably start investing in growth. And then similarly for churn, there are well-known benchmarks. For a single player subscription tool, you don't want your churn to be more than six or 7% month to month. If, if it is, you're going to have a very hard time building a meaningful business. And it's widely known that the best possible month to month churn you can have for a single player subscription tool is in the region of two and a half to three and a half percent, because at that point you're bumping up against fundamental things like credit cards expiring and, and so on. So I think as product leaders, we really need to understand how the metrics we use work, 
what the benchmarks are, and, and even if it makes sense to compare against them. And I'd say for MPS, it doesn't, but for the product market fit score and for churn and retention, it does. Yeah, and in the case of NPS, the issue with benchmarking is in how the NPS survey is applied, right? Whether they're doing it, you know, how often they're doing it, frequency, how they're doing it, whether it's in-app and email or, or all in-app or in what segments they're NPSing. There's a lot of different ways that companies could conduct it that would make benchmarking hard. Is that is that the reason why? Yeah, that's the primary reason. So, uh, and that's also the reason, by the way, why once you've picked a way to measure NPS, you don't change it. Yeah, stick with it. And as I tell people, it's like the important thing is you looked at it as a trend, right? You want that trend going up. As long as you keep measuring it in the same way, you have consistent results to gauge yourself against. Exactly. So, you know, talk to me a little bit about feedback, how you capture feedback, what feedback you act on, which feedback you don't act on. I imagine, you know, building a consumer company, you get a lot of different feedback on your product. Yeah. And uh, one of the main ways we do that is actually with the four questions that I just ran through. So the two that are most relevant are, what is the main benefit you receive from Superhuman and how can we improve Superhuman for you? These are questions three and four in the survey. Uh, So we send these surveys to every single user. And it's important in Sean Ellis's methodology to only send the survey when users have experienced the core of your product. If it's a transactional product, let's say it was something like Uber or DoorDash, you'd want to do it after two or three rides or deliveries. And as Superhuman, we wait until our users have had about three weeks with the product. At that point, they felt the speed, they've sent enough email, they really understand what the value of the product is. So how do you figure out what feedback to act on? Well, number one, you need to double down on what users really love. And to figure out what users really love, and to do it in a way where you're picking the right theme, because there are many reasons that people could love your product, you go back to question number one. And you find the set of users who would be very disappointed without your product. And then you calculate your high expectation customer, as we just described, and then you narrow the market to a particular segment. And so, you know, a simplified example for Superhuman is that we focus and work really well for the archetypes of founders, managers, executives, business development. But let's say for the sake of argument, we work less well for engineers and data science and folks who do less email. Well, with that, you then go back to the survey results and you start to disregard survey results from people who don't fit within your position. And that's the first step for getting relevant feedback. Once you have that pared down set of results, you then look at the answers to question number three for the result, for the surveys rather that remain, which is what is the main benefit that you receive from the product? And what I like to do is to throw this up on a word cloud after reading through the results one by one. So for example, for Superhuman, I'll I'll just read off some of the example answers so people can get an idea of what to expect. It's gonna be things like, Processing email is much faster. I get through my inbox in half the time. The app is crazy fast. The keyboard shortcuts make me feel like an actual superhuman, and so on and so on. Then take all those sentences, remove the filler words, throw it into a word cloud, and then print it out really large and stick it up somewhere in the office. 
And that way, everyone can maintain that intuitive sense of what people really love. Now, then just as importantly, it's critical to understand what holds people back from falling in love with the product. And this is where things get a little bit tricky. For example, we need to politely disregard the feedback from the users who said they were not disappointed with the product. And this can be hard because they're often the most vocal and the most angry of your users. But it doesn't matter because even if you built everything that they asked for, they still would likely not fall in love with the product. That then leaves another segment, which is the somewhat disappointed users. And we can split up the somewhat disappointed users into people for whom the main benefit does resonate and the set for whom the main benefit does not resonate. And again, and as counterintuitive and as weird as this may seem, we should politely disregard the feedback from the somewhat disappointed users for whom the main benefit does not resonate. Because if you did build all the things they ask for, they still don't love your product for the main reason why all the other users love your product. And this is a surefire recipe if you built their things to end up with a muddled and a cloudy and a incoherent product. You know, a product that sort of sprouted features all over the place. We've all used products like this. And in, in many ways, it's, it's kind of the, the fate of an incumbent is to do this. And what I'm saying is, is quite radical, which is do not do this and only focus on the somewhat disappointed users for whom the main benefit does resonate. And at Superhuman, we pay very special attention to these people because something small is holding them back from falling in love with the product. And if you build it, you're likely to convert them into being very disappointed without the product. In other words, really loving the product. Yeah, I mean, that whole thing, there's a lot of threads to dig into there that I think are very interesting. You know, one is like, a lot of people I see trying to satisfy those really unhappy users. They're like, well, let's, let's fix their big problems, right? And in the best case, like you said, is you get them to the point where they're somewhat disappointed and not still buying your product. <laughs> is that like something about human nature that we want to solve the big problems, the most unhappy customers? I think so. I, I think that, you know, that there's that type of personality that's a pleaser and that they want to do the thing that people ask of them. They want to make people happy. And pleasers often respond to, to those who are talking loudest or complaining the most. But logically, if, if you, you know, sit down and think about it and go through the motivations of everybody involved, it's just so unlikely to work. I mean, you're, you're starting at a point where these people are the most unhappy with your product. Why focus on them? Instead, focus on the people who are only slightly unhappy and who actually really love the main benefit of your product. Yeah, I think that that's an important point too, a thread to dig into. Like if they love the main benefit, there likely are these little things you can fix that would flip them over, you know, push them to that point where they're the super happy users. Absolutely. And then you can start to turn it into a metric. And, you know, the whole point of the, the methodology is to measure the size of the very disappointed segment over time. And what we found is that this process is remarkably effective. In the first month, the first quarter where I introduced it to Superhuman, our product market fit score was about 22%. After we resegmented and removed the survey results from people that we simply decided were not in our market, it of course jumped, it went to 33%. And then every single quarter thereafter, 
by doubling down on what the very disappointed users love and implementing what the somewhat disappointed users for whom the main benefit resonated wanted, our score increased. So we went from 33% to 47%, from 47 to 56. And then the next quarter, we were at 58%. And the really interesting thing, if you want to you know, get super nerdy about this, is that turns out to be the theoretical maximum for what the very disappointed score could be in the sense that we had converted all of the somewhat disappointed users for whom the main benefit resonated into being very disappointed. Hmm. Interesting. So you're an advisor, you help different startups. What, you know, beyond some of the stuff we've talked about today, what other advice do you give them? Oh boy. Uh, I get involved in, in lots of different kinds of parts of building a company. So when I'm advising a company, a lot of it's product, but also a lot of it is marketing. A lot of it is positioning a lot of it is the nuts and bolts of, of building a company like fundraising. And I think maybe one of the most interesting things we could talk about is, is positioning. So we actually had, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of frameworks. And we used a framework that I advise all companies use to, to figure out the position for superhumans. So if you think it's interesting, we could dive into that and share that. Yeah, absolutely. I love talking about positioning. I had April Dunford on before oh, to talk about that. Yeah, so we started our positioning exercise with an excellent article by Ariel Jackson. And as it happens, Ariel was actually the product marketing manager at Google who launched Gmail. So the perfect person to be working with for Superhuman. And she advises using a Mad Libs-esque formula like the following, and you just fill in the blanks. So for a target customer who, and then you state the need or the opportunity, the product name is in a product category and the key benefit is this. And unlike competing alternatives, our product has this primary differentiation. And in her article, she gives the example of Harley Davidson. And so filled in, it sounds like the only motorcycle manufacturer that makes big, loud motorcycles for macho guys and macho wannabes, mostly in the United States, who want to join a gang of cowboys in an era of decreasing personal freedom. And she has uh, more examples in the article, and this you know, gives, gives you an intuitive sense of what this is meant to look like. And we found this to be an incredibly valuable exercise when we filled this in. Let me, let me share what it is, and then I can you know, share how we use it. And so for Superhuman, we came up with this positioning. For founders, CEOs, and managers, of high growth technology companies who feel like their work is mostly email, superhuman is the fastest email experience ever made. It's what Gmail could be if it were made today instead of 12 years ago. And unlike Gmail, superhuman is meticulously crafted so that everything happens in 100 milliseconds or less. And that really gave us a North Star early on in the company. We wrote this down as far back as 2015 and then we've actually been able to use this in other surprising ways as well. So, for example, when we work with outside vendors, when we work with an outside design agency, we give this to them so that they understand very crisply what the positioning is as well. Interesting. That's cool. I know we're kind of getting to the end. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the future. What do you think will be interesting trends in product management in 2020? I think we're going to see a lot of game design principles make their way into technology product management. Before I was a founder, 
I actually used to be a game designer back in the day. I worked on RuneScape, which at the time was the world's largest massively multiplayer online role-playing game. And I carry a lot of what we learned at that time forwards to today. So at Superhuman, we now make products like they are games. And most companies worry about what users want or what users need. But if you think about it, nobody needs a game to exist. There are no requirements. So we don't worry about what users want or what they need. We obsess over how they feel. And when your product is a game, people don't just use it, they play it. They find it fun, they tell their friends, they fall in love with it. And game design turns out to be an altogether different kind of product development. And I think we're going to see a lot more of it in this coming year. That's really interesting. And I feel like we could run a whole podcast on that concept, right? And how that's going to apply. And maybe that's something we do in a month or two, because like you, I have, I've never been a game designer, but I could say that I've been, I've been involved in, in some of that from time to time. And I have a lot of uh, thoughts on that. I'd love to dig into and share with you. Maybe we could push that off as a, a future episode, but I think there's a, I agree with you. I think there's a lot there and I think that's going to affect not only consumer software, but make its way over into the enterprise a good bit too. A hundred percent agree. And I think as an industry, we've learned or we're learning rather how to do this as some of us game designers make our way over into technology. I don't want to, you know, jump into the next podcast with you immediately, but maybe let's leave a teaser for our audience here. I think I'll just, you know, capstone this, this piece by saying a game design is not gamification. They turn out to be very different. And if we want to build products like they are games, then it behooves us to really learn and study game design and to apply the fundamental principles to how we build software. But that, that's probably a story for another time. Yeah, yeah. And I would even add and not apply the wrong principles to the wrong product, too, which I've seen some people try to do. And you're like, that might not be what you want to do for your product. But we can leave that for another time, too. So tell me about you. Tell me about what's your favorite product outside of Superhuman? Well, after living out of a suitcase for a few years, I recently moved apartment to somewhere where I see myself for quite some time. So I took the opportunity to unbox, unpack, and to really decorate. And it's been very rejuvenating to have an outlet for a creative expression that really exists outside of software. Uh, So it's rather an old product, but I still find it amazing today. I unboxed and I installed all of my Philips Hue smart light bulbs. You know, these are lamps, these are LED strip lights, these are floodlights. And uh, for those who don't know the product, it's a a Zigbee-based smart home device. Uh, You can control it from your phone or if you want to get fancy from light switches on the wall. And they create a beautiful array of colors, really any color is possible. And uh, you can install them in quite artful ways. So for example, around the bed, uh, and my bedroom was sort of annoyingly dark, on the underside of the frame, I attached these LED strip lights. And so now the lighting in my room, I didn't have to install a physical lamp. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite particular about my user experiences and I didn't want to trail a wire across the bedroom. And so now instead, my bed just sort of suffuses this beautiful diffuse glow into the room. And this, this is, is definitely my most favorite product right now. I love it. I love it. I'd love to see a picture and see how it turns out because I'm in the process of redoing some of that as I'm in a new house and I'm thinking about how to change it beyond just 
you know, tying it in with Alexa, like I did before, where I'm like, Alexa, turn on downstairs and do this, you know, but yeah, yeah it's really cool. Really you can cool. create scenes. You can be like, Hey, I want a scene for reading and then give me a bright white light. Or I want a scene to relax and get ready for sleep and just give me a dark red light or a combination. If you're you know, hosting a party and you want something really festive, you can do like a, a wide variety of, of things with the product. Yeah, not to geek out too much about that right now, but do you tie it in with voice control? I'm I'm just about to set that up. I have uh, an Alexa right now. I'm considering switching over to Google Home. Either way, the the Philips Hue works with both of them, but I've I've yet to do that. That's that's the next step of the geekery. Yeah, I haven't I haven't optimized the different lighting scenes, so to speak, but I did do the the voice control, which I just absolutely loved. So I have to re-implement all of that now. But uh, yeah, that was great. So one final question for you today, Raul, uh, three words to describe yourself. Sure. Uh, let's see. Intentional, determined, and artisanal. Love it. Love it. Well, thank you very much for being here today. This was a joy. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com an online magazine by and for product people.